the JCs, the Kiwanis, the Toastmasters, even the Booster Club are all fine organizations, but none of them are divinely inspired. They're human inventions. There are only three God-ordained institutions. In Genesis chapter 2, God established marriage and the family. In Acts chapter 2, he birthed the church. And in Genesis chapter 9, God originated government. See, before the global flood, God saw enough anarchy, an unbridled evil, to decide that humans needed a form of self-rule. And so as soon as Noah walked off the ark, God instituted human government. Later, Jesus affirmed the role of government. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 21, our Lord made the most remarkable and influential political statement in all of history. Jesus declared, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. He reiterated our dual responsibility. Our lives belong to God, but we also have a duty to earthly government. And now, 25 years after Jesus' statement, the Apostle Paul is still chewing on its ramifications. In fact, his phrasing here in Romans 13, verse 7, even sounds like Jesus. In the chapter before us, Paul explains the Christian's duty to both God and country. Beginning in verse 1, Romans chapter 13. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And notice the key word there, the authorities that exist. It's not just that ideal government is God's idea. No, the rulers that currently exist are there as a result of God's determination. You thought the president and the governor and the congressman were elected, but God is sovereign. He is behind the scenes pulling the strings. God is the one who ultimately sets up and brings down administrations. This means that though he disapproved of their evil, God allowed the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Saddams, as well as the Obamas and the Trumps and the Bidens to rise to power. God has his reasons. After Babylon's wicked despot Nebuchadnezzar sacked the holy city of Jerusalem, the prophet Jeremiah still called him God's servant. You see, God manipulates the political stage for his eternal purpose. God knows that human government of any kind is imperfect. But apparently, even a flawed government is better than no government at all. God sees the big picture. Both democracy and dictatorship are better than anarchy. Judges 21 verse 25 describes the darkest time in Israel's history. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, that's a sad situation. Certainly, the best form of government is a theocracy, a government where the true God sits on the throne. The Bible prophesies that one day, 
This earth will be ruled by Jesus. But until then, any form of government is better than no government at all. You see, remember who was on the throne in Rome when Paul wrote this letter. Just down the street from these Romans, Caesar Nero was a certifiable nut job. Nero had set himself up as God. He killed his wife and son to consolidate his power. He threw the Christians to the lions and burned them at the stake to light his drunken orgies. Nero set fire to downtown Rome to make room for his expansive building projects. As the old saying goes, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Caesar was a madman. Yet Paul is clear concerning God's will. Despite the character of the man holding the office, Christians need to respect and obey the governing authorities. This is why he continues his instructions. Therefore, whoever resists the authority, resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. This applies to building code inspectors and fire marshals who come around once a year. These guys can get tedious. They can become burdensome. Once, a Gwinnett County code enforcement officer, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a Gwinnett County code enforcement officer. But this guy shows up on my doorstep and writes me a ticket for parking two of my cars in the pine straw beside my house. I was livid. It's my pine straw. But I ended up moving the cars for as long as a law isn't unbiblical or immoral, even if it's just really stupid, I still have to submit. In those rare cases where the law of the land conflicts with the laws of God, the Bible teaches that we must obey God rather than man. But that's a rarity. Generally speaking, God uses government to keep civilization civil. And that's a good thing. He writes, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. I remind myself of this whenever I'm cruising down the interstate. As long as I'm driving the speed limit, I've got nothing to worry about. My driving is (laughs) terror-free. But you become terrified when you're driving 90 and all of a sudden that guy's over on the side of the road scoping you out with that little gunshot right at you. You become terrified when you break the law. And that's the way it should be. He goes on and he says, do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good. And you'll have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Generally, the legislators who make the laws and the police who enforce the laws don't relish picking on good law-abiding citizens. Laws are written to restrain bad guys not hassle the good guys. Notice here in verse 4, Paul even calls the police officer God's minister. Notice he bears the sword. Or in our day, we might read, packs a Glock. In other words, God sanctions the police to carry a weapon. I mean, one day, Jesus is going to return to earth to visibly rule the world and right all wrongs. 
But until then, God restrains evil and punishes evildoers and maintains an orderly society through the means of government. Notice verse 5. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Our motivation for observing the law shouldn't be just to avoid punishment. No, the issue is us respecting the God-given authority that the law represents. Whether that law is a speed limit or a building code or a lame brain prohibition about parking your car in your own pine straw. You know, if believers can't submit to the authorities that we do see, how can we tell others to submit to God's authority, an authority that we don't see? Trust me, when a praise the Lord bumper sticker goes sailing down the interstate at 90 miles per hour, it's a sorry witness. Once there was a policeman, he was making some extra money after hours by enforcing the dress code at this ritzy restaurant. Well, this man, he walks in with a jacket, but he's got no tie. So the policeman denies him entrance. You need a tie. Well, the rebellious patron, he stomps out to his car, grabs his jumper cables, wraps them around his neck, comes back in, and he shouts. He says, there, I'm wearing a tie. The cop glares at him, and he says, okay, but you better not start anything. I love that joke. But you better not start anything now. Here Paul is saying, just obey the governing authorities and you'll avoid a lot of trouble. He says, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. And and they are continually, continually to this very thing. Not only does Paul consider a police officer God's minister, notice this, believe it or not. He uses the same term for a tax collector. God's minister. Imagine an IRS agent. God's minister. Now in a free country like America, can the government and can the police and can the tax code be improved? Certainly it can. But both are not only God's idea, it's God's will that we fund them. Trust me, I hate paying taxes, but I do it. For God has commanded me to pay all the taxes that I owe. And again he writes, Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Notice these two terms, taxes and customs. The word translated taxes refers to an annual tax, similar to an income tax or a real estate tax. Whereas customs refers to a tax on goods, like a sales tax. And Paul says, pay them both. But Pastor Sandy, what if the government spends our tax money foolishly or immorally? Are we still supposed to pay our taxes? And the answer is yes, we are. Don't think for a moment that taxes paid to Nero were used to open Christian schools and old folks' homes. You're dreaming. I mean, Paul knew that at least a portion of Rome's tax base was being spent on wild orgies and pagan idolatry. Paul knew that their taxes paid for circuses and carnivals, and yet he told the Christians to pay their taxes anyway. Hey, I signed my 1040, I seal it in an envelope, 
I drop it in that mailbox, and then I pray, God, hold them responsible. From then on, I count on God to hold the politicians responsible for how they spend that money. I've done my duty. My God-given responsibility is to pay my taxes, and so is yours. You know, historians tell us that Roman taxes were more exorbitant than what Americans pay today. Yet early Christians paid every single dime. Second century church leader Tertullian wrote this, What Romans lost by the Christians refusing to bestow gifts on their pagan temples, they gained by their conscientious payment of taxes. Government is ordained by God and funded by us. Well, verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. You know, some Christians use this verse as a blanket prohibition against all borrowing. And yet the context here in verse 8 is about paying taxes, not avoiding debt. I think there can be good uses of debt. Taxes are a debt that we're all obligated to pay. As is love, by the way. You know, if we love people the way Jesus loved us, we'll never exhaust our duty to love even till the end of the age. And so, owe no one anything but to love one another. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. All of these commandments show us what love looks like. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Here Paul lists the second tablet of the Ten Commandments, how we're to treat our fellow man. And he tells us we need to love. And he shows us what love looks like. You see, the law and the commandments were given because God wanted the Jews to know what love appeared like, what love looked like. But once Jesus put love in our hearts, the written rules were obsolete. Love fulfilled the law. Real love won't lust after a neighbor's wife or kill another person or steal from someone or even lie. It's always about giving, not taking. And so owe no one anything but love one another. And do this knowing the time, and now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. You know, God intends for his church, both the first century and the 21st century church, to live in light of this overarching truth. Jesus is coming back. He is. This is what Paul and his peers trusted in, and this is what we should also believe. Once there was a little boy, he heard the grandfather clock malfunction. It chimed 15 times. Only supposed to chime 12 at the most. It chimed 15 times. The little boy shouted, Mommy, Mommy, it's later than it's ever been before. And that is certainly a truth that we can say about today. It is later than it's ever been before. We see signs of the end times all around us. A proliferation of natural disasters. The rebirth of the nation Israel. A spread toward globalism. Russian aggression before our very eyes, hostility towards Jews, a desire to build a third temple in Jerusalem, 
etc., etc. But whenever, wherever we are on God's timeline, one thing's for sure, it's later than it's ever been before. Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. That means if we're going to make a splash for Jesus, we better get started right now. Wait much longer, and it'll be too late. Oh, no man, anything. But we need to start loving each other. Verse 12, the night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. Do you live your life in light of Jesus' soon return? You should. When Jesus returns, do you want to be blowing a 2.2 on the breathalyzer? Or when the last trumpet sounds, do you want to be found flirting with a woman who's not your wife? Or when Jesus comes back, do you want to be on the phone stirring up some juicy gossip? Hey, it's way past time for us to get serious about living for Jesus. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. To put on Jesus is to develop a new identity, a new mindset, to see ourselves in Christ, how he sees us. And then we're to make no provision for the flesh That means have zero tolerance for bad habits and sinful influences. Cut those things out of your life. This is how you live a life dead to sin and alive to God. Well, that's chapter 13. Let me start chapter 14 with an old southern expression of which I'm fond. Here it is. A bulldog can whip a skunk, but is it really worth the effort? (laughs) In other words, there are some battles not worth fighting. And such was the case in the church at Rome. Believers in Jesus were embroiled in conflicts over non-essential supplemental issues. They were minoring on the majors while they were majoring on the minors. They had lost focus on what really mattered. Now in Romans chapter 14, Paul is going to speak of two types of believers. First is the weaker brother. This is the self-righteous. This is the straight-laced dude. He works hard at measuring up. He believes in Jesus, but he takes great pride in his own discipline and in his own abstinence. He's into keeping the rules and following the traditions and thinking this is enhancing his status with God. Whereas the stronger brother, and he's stronger in faith, that's what makes him stronger. He's free from the law. He knows he's right with God by faith alone. In Christ, compliance to custom is no longer required of this brother. He's free to break with tradition at the leading of the Holy Holy Spirit. And it's ironic, you look at these two brothers and you might get confused. For one brother seems more lax compared to the Spartan discipline of the other brother. Yet from Paul's perspective, the brother trusting in God's grace is stronger in his faith than the guy who's trying to build up a spiritual resume that he thinks is going to please God and earn, God, earn more of God's favor. In Paul's mind, real strength is based on faith, not just human fortitude. It's reliance on Christ, not compliance to the rules. 
And the pride of the weaker brother here needs to point out reasons God should love him, whereas the stronger brother buries his pride and rests in God's grace. We want to be the stronger brother. But here's what often happens. The conformist sees her non-conformist sister and wonders why she's so lax. She grows judgmental. While the non-conformist accuses her weaker sister of legalism, she grows judgmental. And this was what was happening in the church at Rome. And in chapter 14, Paul douses the fire. Notice verse 1. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. In the city of Rome, had a wholesale grocery known as the Shambles. There you could purchase quality meat at cut-rate prices. And church members were shopping the Shambles. They were getting a good deal. The Shambles, though, got its meat from pagan temples. The idolaters would make their sacrifices, and then they would sell the leftovers, the extra cuts, to turn a profit for their false prophets. The stronger believers, they weren't bothered by the tainted meat. I mean, meat was just meat. Their standing with God was based on the faith they put in Christ, not the food they put on their plate. The libertarians felt free to cook out. But the weaker believers, those who trusted in the do's and don'ts, they were appalled at the thought of eating desecrated meat. This was guilt by association in their minds. To them, eating the meat was equal to worshiping the idols. To the vegetarians, the ground round was out of bounds. Now, obviously, most of us have never agonized over the spiritual implications of what we purchase from the meat market. This seems like an irrelevant issue. But understand, how we handle non-essentials in church life is critically important. Usually, Christians divide and fellowships fracture, not over the major issues. Rather, we split over the minor concerns. We tend to agree on the essentials, but it's the non-essentials that cause us to polarize. We can get petty and become picky and become judgmental of one another. And that judgmental spirit spoils the sweetness of our unity and our fellowship. As Paul puts it in verse 1, we tend to get distracted in disputes over doubtful things. That's why we shouldn't entertain such squabbles. For he says in verse 3, Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master, he stands or falls. I'm not your Lord, and you're not my Lord. When it comes to non-essentials, we all answer to Jesus, not each other. We're at different stages of spiritual maturity. We all are. And there may be valid reasons why a weaker brother holds to convictions that maybe you felt you were free to lay aside. Say maybe you enjoy a glass of wine with your meal. But a weaker brother could be an alcoholic. Hey, he may never be free to drink. To him, one drink becomes a drunk. 
Hey, the guy who can shouldn't look down his nose at the guy who can't. And the guy who can't shouldn't feel superior to the guy who can. I love the very end of verse 4. It says, indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. You know, when Calvary Chapel started, I was 22 years old. I sported a grungy beard and wore flip-flops most Sundays. and This was after I got dressed up. My only collared shirt at the time was black with pink flamingos. I'm sure visitors to Calvary Chapel took one look at me and figured he'll never make it. And though the verdict is still out, I'm 42 years in now, and God has made me stand. The point is, never judge a guy based on non-essentials. No matter how different he might be from you, Almighty God can make him stand. Notice verse 5. For one person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. It wasn't just diet, but it was days that troubled the believers in the Roman church. Do we worship on Saturday or do we worship on Sunday? Do we keep the Old Testament feasts or have they now become obsolete? Paul is saying when it comes to all of these non-essentials, There is no right or wrong, no black or white. It's a gray matter. It boils down to personal preference and conviction. As Paul pins it, let each be fully convinced in his own mind. Here's a list of gray matters that we deal with today. Can a Christian enjoy a glass of wine at dinner? Or drink a beer after mowing the lawn? Or chew tobacco? Or smoke a cigar? Can a godly woman wear a two-piece swimsuit? Can a man grow long hair, sport an earring, and still be pleasing to God? And what about tattoos? Gray matters also appear in family life. Is it more spiritual to breastfeed your baby or to bottle feed your baby? How should a Christian educate their kids? Homeschool? Christian school? Public school? Is it right or wrong to put your elderly parents in a nursing home? Or is it your responsibility to bring them home with you to live out their days? And what about Santa Claus? (laughs) Do we do Santa Claus or not? See, all these things are gray matters. Worship styles and church etiquette are also subject to personal preference. More gray matters. Is it pleasing to God to play rock and roll music in a church on Sunday? Or should we all be singing hymns? Can a person wear shorts to church? Should communion be weekly or quarterly? Can we play cards at the church retreat? And gray matters even appear in doctrine. Baptism by immersion or baptism by sprinkling? Will the rapture occur before or after the tribulation? Good Christians line up on both sides of these issues. And of course, the granddaddy of all church splitters is a believer truly once saved, always saved. I mean, these are all gray matters. And yet to some people, gray matters really matter. Paul says that peace is found in the lordship of Jesus. Rather than me telling you what to do, are you telling me what to do? It's up to each of us to report directly to Jesus. The Holy Spirit leads each believer at his or her own pace 
and at their own discretion. Of course, if an issue is squarely addressed in Scripture, our position is clear. Stick to the script. Black and white is easy. But with gray matters, we need to leave some latitude. Don't be so dogmatic. Let's leave room for each other to grow, even to disagree. Paul continues in verse 6. He says, He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. I mean, one man worships on Sunday. Another man worships on Saturday. If their worship is sincere, God is pleased. What matters to God is not the day, but the worship. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat and gives God thanks. I mean, one man is grateful to God for the burger he's chowing down on. Another man thinks that by abstaining from meat, he's bringing glory to God. What matters in both cases is that God gets glorified. He says, for none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. We all answer to the Lord, not to each other. It's God that gets the final say. Our Lord is our judge. Not me, not you. The Lord's our judge. He says, for to this end, Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Jesus paid the price to be Lord of his church. He died and rose and lived again to be Lord. Thus, when you judge a brother in one of these gray matters, you are usurping the Lord's authority. How dare you? Beware, are you trying to take Jesus' place? He's the judge, not you, not me. You know, my fourth-born child was a late walker. Thankfully, he caught up. Once he got a little space... But the reason he crawled for so long is that he lived in the house with three other siblings. And whenever the little guy tried to get up and walk, he'd always get knocked down by one of his brothers or sister. And this is what keeps lots of babes in Christ from learning to walk. We don't give people room to grow. They don't feel the freedom to make a mistake. They're afraid that if they get messed, if they mess up, they'll get knocked down. So they just crawl spiritually. Real spiritual growth involves some risk. It's always easier just to sit back and be told what to do. Legalism is easy. It's harder to step out and learn to follow Jesus for yourself. Notice what he says in verse 10. He says, but why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Every one of us is accountable to God. Jesus is the judge of us all. That's why it's foolish for us to judge another believer. Remember the motto, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, charity. I'm sorry, liberty. And in all things, charity. 
Let me say it to you again. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to be a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. May the church be a no-judgment zone. A man's talking on the phone. We're listening in, but we're only hearing one side of the conversation. He says, yes, Gladys, it's difficult. I know I ought to be more firm, but it's so hard. You know how she is? Yes, I know you warned me. You told me she was a hard woman and would make my life miserable. Yes, you begged me not to marry her, and you were right. Oh, you want to talk to her? Okay. The man calls into the other room. Gladys, your mother's on the phone and wants to talk to you. Poor Gladys. It's tough enough to get shot down by your enemy, but to get zinged by your own family, your own mom. But the same is true in the church. We expect the world to be against us. We expect the world to judge us and try to destroy us. But when the stumbling block originates from our own family, it's terrible. Paul warns us not to participate in an activity that will tempt or mislead a brother or sister in Christ. We need to love each other. Oh, no man, anything, but to love one another. And if we're ever going to start loving people, it needs to be in the church. Verse 14, he says, I know, important verse, by the way, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing unclean of itself But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Take music, for example. Most churches once complained about rock music. They called it evil. But what's the difference between a C note played on a grand piano and a C note played on an electric guitar? There is no difference. What makes one form of music Good or evil is the message it communicates and the spirit in which it's played. See, Paul says nothing is intrinsically evil. It becomes good or bad by how it's used. Its use determines whether it's moral or immoral. See, one man can use an object to the glory of God. Another man can become ensnared by that same object. The problem's not the object. It's the man. Yet if your brother is grieved because of your food, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy with your food the one for whom Christ died. Wow. See, a thing becomes sinful when it causes another brother or sister to get distracted and to fumble away their faith. Or when my example causes that brother to stumble in his faith. If it causes a fumble or stumble, I shouldn't be free to do it. Listen to the following paraphrase of verses 20 and 21. All food is good, but it can turn bad if you use it badly. If you use it to trip others up and send them sprawling. When you sit down to a meal, your primary concern should not be to feed your own face, but to share the life of Jesus. Don't you dare let a piece of God-blessed food 
become an occasion for soul poisoning. Listen to that again. Don't you dare let a piece of God-blessed food become an occasion for soul poisoning. There was once a man, a man who always had a bottle of wine with his Thanksgiving dinner. One year, his pantry was bone dry. So he put on his coat and he headed down to the corner liquor store. But as he walked down the street, he heard someone following him. He turned around and it was his little boy. And suddenly it hit him where he was leading his son. He turned and he went home. You see, friends, it's possible to destroy with food or drink a person for whom Christ died. Your liberty can sabotage their faith. Instead of being a brother, you become a stumbling block, a bother, a real blockhead, quite frankly. Was exercising your freedom really worth it? If you're truly free, it's as easy to restrain for the sake of a brother as it is to indulge for your own selfishness. It's been said, the shepherd paces the flock to accommodate the weakest lamb. Our love for each other will do the same. Verse 16, Therefore do not let your good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. These Romans were upset over diet and over holy days. But both issues were of little consequence in the big scheme of things. What matters in the kingdom of God are matters of the heart. Right living and peaceful relationships and joy inspired by God's Spirit. Phil Taylor grew up in the 1960s in an all-white church in the Deep South. I can identify with Phil. He writes of his experience. He says, I don't know how we missed it. While King marched on Selma and an entire race cried out for justice, I heard sermons against rock and roll, the Beatles, miniskirts, and long hair. But I never heard them mention racism, injustice, intolerance, Hatred and bigotry, those are the things God hates. Man, I could identify. You know, churches have always had a penchant for missing the forest for the trees. We fail to see the obvious, man. As Jesus says, we strain at a gnat and we swallow a camel. God, please open our eyes to what truly matters. The kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Those are the things that should matter to us. Verse 18 tells us, For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Therefore let us pursue the things which make for peace, and the things by which one may edify another. So you've confused your priorities if you hurt a brother just to flaunt a freedom, or to make a statement. Building up one another should be our top concern. Hey, loving a brother is always more important than proving a point. Verse 20 tells us, Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Hey, God's mission in the world is to save souls and grow faith, not to indulge the whims of selfish Christians. Our fellowship is, is as vital as our freedom. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon, 
he had the habit of enjoying a good cigar. For a time, he was quite proud of the fact that he smoked cigars. Once he was questioned about his smoking, he replied, or he, he was asked about his smoking, and he replied, he said, I never smoke in excess. Well, when asked what constituted excess, he facetiously replied, never more than two at a time. Spurgeon felt at liberty to light up a stogie. That is until one day he saw a billboard in London, a billboard ad for cigars. And it read, smoke the brand that Spurgeon smokes. He was so appalled that people were pointing to him to get people to smoke. From that day onward, he laid down his cigars and he never smoked again. He didn't want to destroy a brother with something so foolish. He didn't want another saint to become addicted to a vice because of his example. And neither should we. Paul sums it up in verse 20. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat meat, nor drink wine, nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or is offended or is made weak. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. If because of your faith you feel free to do a thing that causes another brother to stumble, then keep it to yourself. You're not free to flaunt that freedom. He says, happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. A believer's freedom can become a sin if he or she exercises it in an unloving or an unresponsible fashion. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not from faith is sin. If your freedom causes someone else to violate his or her conscience, then it becomes a sin to you. Don't be proud. Don't be cavalier. Don't exercise a freedom without being sensitive to the people you could affect. If the brother's conscience is going to condemn him, then respect his own conscience above your freedoms. Again, two rules apply to our participation in a gray matter. First, does it cause me to fumble away my faith? If I can't do it in faith to God's glory, then I'm not free to participate. And then second, will it cause another Christian to violate their conscience and stumble in their faith? If it causes a fumble or a stumble, don't go there. Rather than fumble or stumble, let's be humble. We all need to grow. The weaker brother should grow in his understanding of God's grace, while the stronger brother should grow in his love for God's people. May we all grow as we walk in Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you, Lord, for these important chapters. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand and grasp these truths and apply these truths to our specific situations. Gray matters are still such an issue. Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to love one another. Owe no man anything but to love one another. Help us to love, to love enough to even curtail our freedoms when it's needed. Lord, thank you for the government. Lord, we pray for our leaders. Lord, we pray for those that have been uh, voted into office. We pray, Lord, that you would give them wisdom, godly wisdom, 
and that you would help them, Lord, humble themselves and seek after your leading and your guidance. And Lord, help us to support them the best we can. Lord, we ask that you work in our hearts this morning. We thank you for these truths. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said,